you can explore an exclusive collection of case law at Decisis Law Reports. Browse a comprehensive collection of nearly 14,000 reports of Irish legal judgments delivered since 2011. Visit decisis.ie to find out more. Hello and you're very welcome to episode two of The Fifth Court, a podcast on legal affairs presented by my good self, Peter Leonard Barrister. And myself, Mark Tottenham Barrister and editor of Decisis.ie. Mark, this is episode number two. I hope it won't be a difficult second album. We got we got a great reaction to last week's interview with Mr. Justice Gerald Hogan. Yeah, we had him on speaking about the Free State Constitution and about the, the role of a judge and how neutral a judge can be. Um, and anybody who hasn't had a chance to listen to that episode, uh, it's still available on all the major podcasting and what, apps. And what about the classical music? Absolutely. A very did good, did a very you good... nip into Tower Records and have a look at the Sibelius uh, section? I listened to it on Spotify on my way home. Silence in the fifth court. After the Supreme Court uh, last week, this week our interviewee comes from the world of corporate law. And we're delighted to have Karen Harty in studio Uh, Many of you will know Karen over the years as a leading partner in McCann Fitzgerald, but she's recently made the move to Denton's and we're going to talk to Karen about that. We're going to talk to her about her involvement in Ireland for law and her belief that diversity has still a little bit of a distance to go in corporate law firms. So that's going to be really interesting. But before we get to that, Mark, we're going to review some important decisions from the courts. And we're going to start with a case called Keating and Shannon Foynes Port Company Limited. Yeah, so this is a very interesting case. Uh, Shannon Foyne's Port Company is a fully state-owned company. Um, But like all state-owned companies, it has its own board. And the case here involved a chief executive officer of the company. For seven years, he was told he was entitled to performance-related pay. They had a remuneration committee who had made a decision to recommend performance-related pay. However, the board had discretion not to pay it. Now, in the background, the fact that this company is state-owned meant that the government is the sole shareholder. And there had been an indication, a government policy, essentially, that performance-related pay, certainly in the difficult years, sort of between 2009 and 2013, I suppose, um, shouldn't be paid. And so, despite the, the recommendation of the remuneration committee the directors decided not to pay him his performance-related pay. Okay, so it came down to the duty of the directors of the board. Yeah. So we know the shareholder is the state. The state was saying, hold off and giving these people their money. But the chief executive wanted his bonus-related payment. uh, And the directors had a decision to make. And Mr. Justice... um, Sanfi. Sanfi uh, came down in favour of the fiduciary duty of directors to make a, a decision that was in the interest of the company and not the shareholder. Yes, it's, it's a difficult distinction between the company and the shareholder. But I suppose in the overall scheme of things, where if a company is, say, recruiting somebody to a high level and is saying, well, you'll be entitled to certain performance-related pay, um, and then they arrive and they find that the shareholder is blocking that, then that could be arguably not in the interest of the company, even though the shareholders obviously are the effectively, effectively the owners of the company. So this was a decision in the High Court. Will it go to the Court of Appeal, do you think? I I couldn't know. Who knows? Who knows? Maybe the state might want to challenge that one. We don't know. Okay, let's move on to criminal cases. And we're going to look at some criminal cases that appeared in the Criminal Court of Appeal. 
both concerned the length of sentences that were opposed, that were that the, the appeals were based on that. Let's take a look at the case of DPP versus Flynn first, Mark. Yeah, I know this is in many ways a very sad case. Um, the accused in this case was um, stopped by Angarda Shiakana basically on his way. I think he, he had been deputed to collect a large amount of drugs. I think it was 87,000 euros worth of methamphetamine. Um, so he pleaded guilty. Now, I suppose what's worth saying is that this is what they call a Section 15A offence. So anybody who is caught, who is convicted of being in possession of over 13,000 euros worth of narcotics there is an automatic minimum sentence of 10 years. Now, that automatic minimum doesn't apply in certain circumstances, including where there's a plea of guilty. And what the judge did in this case was imposed a five-year sentence. Now, the concern, the, the reason that this was appealed, because obviously five years is a lot lower than the, the mandatory minimum, uh, the reason that it was appealed was that the accused in this case had a, a history of heroin addiction. He, uh, he, it appears that the reason he got involved in this particular enterprise was arising from a drug debt. But also, um, he had a sad family background in that his family had split up and he was the sole carer for his son yes. who suffered from schizophrenia. And obviously, the, the, you know, your, your heart bleeds for anybody in these circumstances where okay. effectively the son is going to be left without his primary care. So what we're talking about here are mitigating factors. Yeah. The, the individual in question was 50 years of age. He had a lot of prior convictions. Yeah. Yeah. And that obviously will come mm -hmm. into play when the judge is deciding on the appropriate yeah. sentence. Uh, but there is, you know, a factor. It can be factored in that if somebody has a dependent and the dependent is reliant on them and exclusively yeah. reliant on them, which yeah. seemed to be the case in, in respect of, of the individual in this case, yeah. that that can be taken into account. Yeah. Now, obviously, the Court of Appeal uh, felt maybe that the High Court judge had taken that into account because they didn't give any any further leniency no, in no. terms of their decision. Now, it's worth saying that the, the role of the Court of Appeal in reviewing sentence is not to say we think the sentencing judge got it right or wrong, really to say whether the sentencing judge got it within the appropriate range. And what they said that was there was no error in principle on the part of the, the sentencing judge that in this particular case, notwithstanding this family circumstances, where the, there's such a large amount of drugs involved, anybody who's involved in this kind of enterprise knows that it is a serious matter. And unfortunately for, for this particular individual, they upheld the sentence. Okay, let's move to another case. And mm. this is another case that was before the Court of Appeal. And the Court of Appeal took a slightly different approach in this case. Yeah, so th this is a case, DPP and Kinsler, where the <clears throat> accused was um, found in possession of a stolen vase worth €500. Euro. Now, he'd originally been charged with the theft of the vase, but when it came to sentencing, he, he only pleaded guilty to possession of stolen property. And the sentence that he was given in the circuit court was 20 months in respect of the offence. Now, he had a, quite a history of, um, he had 13 uh, previous convictions for burglary, six for theft and six for unlawful taking of a motor, motorised vehicle. Um, but in this case, the, it, it appears that the sentencing judge in the circuit court had made comments that suggested that the judge thought that he had been responsible for the theft in the first place. Now, obviously, if you're not convicted of the theft, you are presumed to be innocent of the theft. Yes. And therefore, he could only be sentenced in relation to the possession of the stolen property. Okay. Um, now, the circumstances by which he obtained this crystal vase were, were kind of interesting, weren't they? Well, I... I 
think they, they they didn't go into a whole lot of detail into how he had Did he claim he was intoxicated at the time? There might have been a claim of that sort. He turned up in a cafe or something and he tried to offer this vase for sale. And I think yeah. that's I think that's how, how, how eventually the the guards got hold of him. Anyway, sorry, proceed, Mark. Well well I suppose the the, the issue is that the Court of Appeal looked at the sentencing judge's comments and then took the view that the 20-month sentence in this case, notwithstanding his extensive history of uh, burglary and theft, um, decided that 20 months was excessive and they reduced it to 15 months. Okay. And it, there was a sad aspect to this case as well. The, the, the individual was 36 years of age, I believe, had spent 14 years in prison. Yeah, yeah. He, so and, he, won, and, he was a repeat also, offender. So and that also would had be addiction issues like the, the other case. But I mean, that's just so common, unfortunately, in our criminal courts. So in our two cases, we had one that the Court of Appeal felt, no, we're not going to introduce any introduction or reduction. Uh, and in the second case, uh, they did. They reduced the they sentence reduced. by a quarter. Yeah. Okay. So anyway, very interesting cases there, Mark. I am delighted to welcome to the studio Karen Harty, who's a very well-known corporate lawyer in Dublin. Karen, you were with McCann Fitzgerald for many years. Many of our listeners will be aware of that. And you've recently moved to Denton's. So big move. And I think it's only just in the last two weeks. Yes, that's right. I'm, I'm only there two weeks. And uh, I suppose it is. I was in McCann's for 24 years. Uh, would have been 25 in May next year. So I suppose I might have been regarded as a bit of a piece of the furniture there. But uh, I, I'm not going to make the mistake that Lot's wife made. I'm going to look forward. And uh, um, I'm really delighted to be uh, part of the Denton's team. Okay, it's well, really we're going exciting. to talk about Denton's. And I see in the blurb for Denton's, it is the world's biggest law firm. It is, yeah. Um, it's an extraordinary size, actually. I think I'm right in saying 12,000 lawyers. Wow, okay. Uh, and a huge number of support staff as well around the world. So, it so has this new Dublin office. Coverage. So we're going to get into that. But I know you don't. You want to look forward, unlike Lot's wife. But let's go back to the start. Just a little bit of biog. We enjoy a little bit of biog in this show. So okay. where does Karen Harty come from? Uh, Karen Harty comes from an unlikely place, <laughs> I think is fair to say. I grew up um, in a place called Carrick Fergus uh, right. of the song. And if yes. uh, I have a few drinks on me, I, I might even I sing was. it for you. Exactly. Um, grew up there uh, and went to school in Belfast um, and uh, studied at Queen's. Although I was encouraged not to go to Queen's when I was at school, I was encouraged to leave Northern Ireland like so many other uh, people yes. from my background. But um, I was a bit, what we say in Antrim, I was a bit thran, a bit stubborn. Uh, and I decided that I would go to Queen's anyway. So I studied law at Queen's, not thinking I was going to be a lawyer. Um, but then I got a real grow for the love um, or for the for the law and um, managed to get myself an apprenticeship, which were very hard to get in those days. Uh, and the rest is history, I suppose. Okay. And straight into McCann's, was it? No, um, I qualified in Belfast uh um, was apprenticed with Cleverfoot and Rankin as they then were. They're now known as CFR. Um, and I worked there for almost a year um, and then I uh, got an offer I couldn't refuse from McCann's. So, I so came you worked down. there for 24 years. And when you left, what was your role with McCann's? I was a litigation partner. So okay. I was a partner there for about 17 years. And just reflecting on some of the big cases you would have been involved in, because I know you were very active and you were in a lot of high-profile cases. Mm. Yeah, I suppose I'm probably best known for the work I did on uh, for IBRC uh, in yes. respect of asset recovery um, um, in relation to the Quinn family um, and also uh, the case 
in relation to David Drum and his bankruptcy. Okay. That, that's probably the case that people would know me best for. You did a little bit of defamation as well. I have, I have, I have a memory in the back of my head. Yeah, yes. Media defence. Yeah, ever since I was an apprentice, actually. It's, it's an area of my practice I really love and I still do it. Um, uh, and uh, I've, I suppose, been involved in a number of high-profile jury trials over the years. Um, but, you know, it's not all about the high-profile either. Uh, and, and I've done a lot of cases... Um, quietly over the years uh, that weren't a high profile, but which uh, were of huge importance to the clients. So, yes. you know, I've always had a mix. And, you know, my practice really spans um, commercial litigation, white collar defence and regulatory advice and, and then media defence. And uh, I, I would have done a lot of financial services work as well, but I'm probably best known these days for fraud and asset recovery work okay. and okay. the white collar. So you left the mothership, if I can call it that, McCann Fitzgerald, and you wanted a new challenge, which I think is a wonderful thing. How does that come about? Did you get a phone call? Did you did you look at the small ads in the Irish Times? How do you find a new job? How do you find? I, I think the, the new job found me. Um, is the, the kind truth. of guessed as much, but anyway. Um, look, you know, it's a great opportunity, um, and I I've always been of the mindset that life should be an adventure, and sometimes opportunities come along. Uh, at the right time for you personally, and that's very much the situation here. Um, I, it, it, Denton's is a really interesting firm in the Irish market, I think, and I know we'll come on to that, but certainly um, it didn't take too much to pique my interest in terms of what they were offering and the proposition that they have very much spoke to my skill set. So, um, so there we are. So you've been taken on as head of litigation for their Irish operation. That's right. Now Denton's, we, we know there's a lot of international firms are setting up and establishing themselves in Dublin at the moment and maybe other parts of Ireland. Uh, why are Denton's coming to Ireland? Well, Denton's have been in Ireland for two years now at this point. And, you know, I wouldn't have been interested in a move to a toehold operation, if I can call it that. As, as a number of the international firms have gone for that sort of setup where they have a very small presence in the Irish market and they're really waiting to see, I think, what will happen. Um, that would not have been of interest to me. What was of interest to me in relation to Denton's is that they have already, I have to say, within a very short space of time, established themselves as a powerhouse in the Irish legal market. And I did a lot of due diligence, as you can imagine, um, before taking a leap like this. And I was hugely impressed uh, with um, what they've achieved up to this point. Okay. So. And when a company like, when a firm like Denton's comes to Ireland, I mean, presumably if they want to make an imp impression, they are effectively headhunting from a number of different firms. I mean, are you, are you working now with people who have been sort of le leading litigators from, for, uh, from a number of different Dublin firms that have now moved across to Denton's? Yeah, it's a very interesting model, I suppose. Um, we have uh, partners who were previously with uh, a range of different large firms um, in the Irish market. Um, and uh, I think what's interesting about the way that Dentons have approached it is that they have really gone for quality. Um, and and I'm, I'm not saying that in an arrogant way, but I just think it's very important if you're going to build the sort of operation that Dentons are building and have built already, you do need people who are going to attract key clients and, and, and be able to really hit the ground running. And that's the approach they've taken. So, And can I just ask, the, the, the reason that there weren't so many international firms in Ireland until the last few years, was, was 
Was there a change with the 2015 Legal Services Regulation Act where suddenly once limited liability partnerships could come into Ireland, that that kind of opened the door? Because you you tended to find that a lot of these international firms, there were LLPs in lots of different countries, but we didn't have that. And did the shatter legislation effectively open the door to that kind of firm opening up here? It's a really good question. I don't know that that was um, much of a motivator. Uh I, I know that a number of firms have moved to LLP status uh, over the last few years. Um, I'm not sure it's a key differentiator in terms of the decisions. I think firms that have made the decision to come into the Irish market have their eyes open and they're looking at the Irish market um, as being quite different to a lot of other markets and very dynamic. In what way? Well, if you look at the... Uh, huge number of tech companies that have positioned themselves here, uh, pharma companies, medical devices, manufacturers, you know, uh, you you have such a high quality of international firms that have positioned themselves in Ireland. It's an easy decision to make, actually, to get into the Irish market. I, I think the Irish market is not straightforward for an entrant. And certainly, um, as I said, one of the reasons I was really impressed by Denton's is because they have really established themselves very quickly doing very high value work. Um, and, and that's, uh, I think, very impressive what they've achieved in the short amount of time. And can I, I, sorry. Don't know, Mark, please. Well, well, uh, I was just wondering, I mean, a Denton's, a, a, a firm like that that have, obviously has a global presence, are they are they sort of following the same model as, as say, accountancy firms like KPMG and PwC and I suppose Goldman, Goldman Sachs in that they're, they're international and presumably a lot of their clients are international as well. So that if you're advising Google or whatever, you know, that that you're you're not just taking them on an Irish basis. I mean, Denton's must, or I don't know if Google is a client, but they must be advising multinationals that operate in lots of different co- countries and advising them on their legal issues sort of uh, on a transnational basis. Yes. And, you know, that was something that was attractive to me because I have had quite an international practice for the last number of years. So it's quite a good fit with my skill set and experience. You know, you're absolutely right. Um, The global coverage piece is very important. But what I particularly liked about the Denton's model, which I have to say is really unusual, is that they don't have a sort of a structure where there is a, a mothership, if you like, in one particular jurisdiction and everybody else looks to that jurisdiction. Um, it, it's actually quite a flat structure, surprisingly. So while it's global, they call it polycentric. I'm not quite sure what polycentric means. I have, I'm sure I will learn that. But w- what I take it to mean and understand it to mean is that they have local offices in their local jurisdictions that are very much local firms, but they are operating within a global framework. Okay. Well, as you said, it was a very attractive offer to you, Karen, and obviously you went with it. And I, I know there's a number of other partners have left other firms. Is there any sort of rearguard action from the firms that when partners are leaving, is, is, that, is, that, is that difficult in any way where kind of partners are trying to hold on to partners and they're moving to new firms? I'm just wondering, how does that work within the fellowship of corporate law firms? Well, I can't speak about anybody else's experience. I will say that I leave behind a lot of very good friends in McCann's. And I have to say it was a very amicable split. Mm. Um, And, uh, you know, I I think that says a lot about McCann's as a firm and the the partners in it. Um, 
but uh, I can't say that other people have had that sort of a positive experience and, and I wouldn't want to generalise. So. Okay, but before we go into sort of the area of work that you want to work in, what are your ambitions for Dentons? Like, where does Dentons hope to go? Are we going to be reading about it as one of the big five firms here like we used to have traditionally? Is that, is that the hope or is it going to be more niche than that? The sky's the limit. Um, yes. Well, I suppose people who know me know that I don't tend to hold back. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm very ambitious for the business, actually. Um, we are moving to shiny new premises in Kildare Street after Christmas, uh, which I think I'm right in saying can accommodate about 150 people. So we're certainly looking to grow and we're looking to grow fairly rapidly, but not um, at the expense of quality. So we're taking our time to make sure that we get really okay. good people. Okay. It's really good experience. Well, you've also been very active in trying to develop work within this, I suppose, jurisdiction, Ireland for Law. Will you tell us about that? That's something that you've been very involved in, Karen, where you're trying to sort of develop Ireland as an international legal hub. Certainly. And I, you may have to stop me because I am a little bit obsessive about this. So apologies in advance. No, I look, my involvement in Ireland for Law has been obviously on the dispute side and just really in the last year or so, um, uh, I came up with the idea of doing a disputes event that was an international disputes event because I would spend a fair bit of time um, at different events around the world. I have a lot of contacts who are international practitioners. And it was clear to me from my practice and experience that there are cases where, very big cases, where decisions have to be made as to where you litigate. And where people have a choice, you know, they're looking at different fora around the world and they're saying, where is the best position for us to take this very large scale litigation? And just Dublin really wasn't part of the conversation. Uh, they were talking about Singapore. They'd be talking about the DIFC in Dubai. You know, they'd be looking at Paris, London, Amsterdam, New York. You know, those were the, the obvious um, fora. And my view on it was that Dublin had a lot to offer. Okay, um, and what is that? What will is you that? Put, will, you, yeah. will you put a name on those those different attributes that you think Dublin has? Okay, uh, it's an English language jurisdiction. It's a common law jurisdiction. Um, it is. It has all the panoply of uh, remedies available to it that, that you have in common law jurisdictions uh, and tools like discovery, interrogatories, um, all of those things that aren't available in a civil law jurisdiction. And are you talking about courts as opposed to arbitration? I mean, you're talking about domestic Irish courts dealing with international Yes, I am for the moment, although arbitration is obviously also a key part of dispute resolution for international disputes. Um, the, The other thing is obviously our positioning within the EU. You know, we have the Brussels recast all available to us. You know, our access to the reciprocal arrangements within the EU uh, added to our common law status, plus, you know, our uh, tradition of constitutional jurisprudence, which is highly respected around the world. We have a brilliant judiciary. Um, we have also a very strong tradition of the rule of law. Those are all things that international practitioners are looking for. And um, the best way I could sum it up is, uh, you know, I think... The key thing about international disputes is relative certainty. So if you're litigating in a jurisdiction, you want to be relatively certain of the outcome. That you know how it's going to go. Yes, absolutely. You know, you want to be relatively certain as to how long it'll take. 
you want a sense that the judges are honest, that they are highly educated, that they okay. are very mm. capable and that they understand the complexity of what it is you're dealing with. These all sound like basic things, and yet there are many jurisdictions where those things aren't available. Well, so you're obviously very confident that we have those in this jurisdiction, and that's a wonderful thing to hear. So how do you sell that to an international audience? So what are you doing to sell that to an international audience? Because obviously we know that we have a good system here, or we believe that our system is very good, but we have to convince others that Ireland is the spot. So how do you do that? Uh, you do it in a couple of ways. So we set up Dublin International Disputes Week. We had the inaugural event this year. And it was really great. So we had over two days um, at the core conference and the event, we had more than 400 people uh, in physical attendance. And then we had a number of satellite events where we had people attending remotely. And, um, you know, what it's about is getting international practitioners and GCs in-house counsel in a room to talk about the issues that matter to international practitioners. Um, and it sounds obvious, it's not easy to achieve, but I have to say we were really pleased uh, with the high quality conference that we put together. And it was very much a team effort. Uh, There's a steering group made up of uh, all the big firms in Ireland were involved um, and, and helped frame it. And it was really well received and the feedback was great. So okay. that's one thing that you do. You get people together in Dublin and you say, okay, we can actually operate at the level you're looking for. There was a recent event in New York as well, I believe. That's right, yeah. There was. Um, I, I didn't make that because I was on a break uh, at the time that it was on, but it was uh, very successful. And actually, one of the great things about the, the event in New York, I understand, was that you had American practitioners talking about their positive experience of using the courts in Ireland and litigating here. And that's the best sales um, pattern that you can have when somebody else says, I had a great experience of litigating in Ireland. And are they talking specifically about the commercial court, the general high court, or just the the, the judicial system generally? Um, I think the commercial court is where most of these types of disputes live hmm. uh, within the Irish system. Because I have to say, at the risk of sounding like a lefty lawyer, that, that I always have this concern that we we have a, a, there's a danger of moving into a kind of two-tier court system because there's no doubt that in the ordinary high court we experience delays. There are delays in the district court and circuit court where obviously the most Irish people are litigating and it, it just I just have a concern and I know I'm not the only one to have this that that we're, we're looking at providing a kind of court system for, for, for the Googles for the big multinationals that maybe isn't being replicated for the people of Ireland I mean is that a concern of yours? It is yes and actually I know it's a concern of the Chief Justice because sure. he has spoken about it recently Um. I'm doing a particular job. Sure. Uh, uh, most of my litigation is in the commercial court. I do litigate in the high court because I'm doing civil jury trials. Uh, and they, for example, of all um, uh, high court cases during the pandemic, uh, the jury list suffered, I think, more than any others because the jury list was suspended uh, and cases just couldn't get on. So I'm acutely aware of that. Uh, I, I think that I am reassured by the Minister for Justice's statement of intent in terms of her determination to um, appoint an, a, quite a large number of, of new judges. And I think that will make a difference. Of course, you need to have somewhere for those judges to sit. Mm. And um, it'll be interesting to see you know, what the arrangements are in terms of courtroom space and so on. But I think the commercial court, I mean, they have 
They have a sort of a, a fast track procedure in the commercial court that we don't see in even in other divisions of the high court, you know, where you really the pressure is on to get the cases on. And I, I sort of wonder if that's something that should be that, that there should be more focus on in the other divisions of the high court and, and elsewhere in the court system to, to really kind of press on the both getting the pleadings out and getting the, the cases on for hearing. Yeah, I'd say a couple of things to that, mm. Mark. One is, you know, it's all about resources. Sure. If you don't have the judicial resources, mm. you can't have the case management. And new rules, as you know, that were brought mm. in a few years ago, yeah. mm. haven't been implemented because they didn't have the judicial resources uh, to do yeah. it. So the resources are absolutely crucial at every level of the court system. Um, and it's hugely important to clients that that they that those resources are prioritised. Um, I, th- I think the second thing that I would say uh, about that is that, you know, there are significant frustrations still in our system. For example, you know, a young lawyer spending hours down at the central office trying to physically file yeah. affidavits. What is that about in 2022? That does not make sense. We should have electronic filing. Um, and things like that, we've made huge progress, but, you know, th- th- you know, can you make an electronic payment at the central office? I think I'm right in saying, no, you can't. So uh, things like that really do need to be modernised. Um, but we're getting there. And I think certainly we see progress. But, you know, it, it, it's important at every level. But I have to be honest and say that most of my cases are in the commercial court. Sure. OK, well, well, moving on from that, uh, Karen, um, and, and we wish you well with that, you know, create more work in Dublin. I think everybody would be very happy about that. There are a few sceptics out there, aren't there? There are. We have talked to some uh, partners <laughs> in a previous life, Mark, and they were kind of saying, ah, this isn't going to wash at all. But I think generally most of your colleagues are on board with this. Everybody believes in more work, I presume. Well, look, people have different perspectives. I, I tend to be the sort of person, and I know it sometimes drives people mad, but I see opportunities. I don't generally see problems. And uh, I see an opportunity here for Ireland to position itself. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to happen overnight. Yes. But certainly, I think Ireland has the ability to attract more of this complex international work. And just to, I suppose, pause and look at what they did in London, because London has been a real success story in terms of uh, the government there recognised the value of legal services to the overall economy. And I'm not sure you know, that that happened here traditionally. I think it is happening now. I think the government does recognise the importance of legal services, but it has never been measured. And I have argued that we should measure it. We should actually do that exercise of looking at... I think the government is quite supportive now, isn't it? Absolutely. And I have to say um, that the Department of Justice in particular has been a huge supporter of Ireland for Law and of the initiative, the Disputes Week initiative. So I think that's really positive. Okay, I'm going to bring it in a different direction now, Karen. When we were having a little chat before we got to meet today, I was talking about other issues and an issue that you brought up, which didn't surprise me, but you talked about diversity within the world of corporate law. And this is something that's very important to you. No surprise in that. Uh, what, what did you mean by that? Before we get into it, just generally, what were you, what were you getting at when you, when you referred to diversity? Well, when I talk about diversity, I usually start with access and inclusion and diversity because I actually think the word diversity is used as a bit of a platitude these days. But what I'm talking about is a recognition within the commercial world that having people who all look the same and come from the same backgrounds and sound the same, making decisions within an organisation isn't good for the business. And statistically, we know there is there are plenty of studies to show that a diverse business, in terms of the leadership in the business in particular, 
is more profitable. So the business case is easy on this. Um, but it is, you're right, it is something I am vocal about and I feel really passionately about. And I think it's something that worries me um, in the professions at the moment that we haven't made the progress I would like to have seen. Okay. And, and the, the use of language like worrying, for example, and I don't want to overstate this, but like, what are you saying is that there seems to be a kind of a, a stereotypical person who progresses within a corporate law firm? Is that what you're saying? Well, I think people are inclined to hire people that look like them and sound like them because that's easy. That's an easy decision. And um, I think what has happened, uh, you know, you, you hear of the term greenwashing mm. and I think there's an equivalent. I don't know what the term is. Is it diversity washing or whatever it is? But I think that people, very well-intentioned organisations, are inclined to see it as a question of numbers. It's a numbers game. Oh, right. OK, we need more women for example, yes. uh, or we need, you know, people, more people of colour. We, we need, you know, a, a more diverse business. Great. Right. That's a box ticked. We've done that now. And let's apply for the prize uh, and the awards that say we're a diverse business. And added to that, they'll bring in some initiatives. So there'll be various DNI initiatives within the organisation. And they think that's the job done. And my point of view is it's not the job done because to my mind, and this is very much something it, that Dentons, I think, are very strong on, uh, which attracted me to Dentons as a business, is that they believe that diversity and access and inclusion are about seniority and influence, actually. And secondly, about the lived experience of people within the organisation. So just to illustrate the point, you know, if you're, um, you know, the diversity, if you imagine diversity is like a jigsaw, and you say, well, look, we, we, have, we have this great jigsaw of people within the business, isn't it great? But if you're one of the pieces and you just can't fit in terms of your own lived experience, that's not diversity and inclusion and access. If, if all the events organised by the firm uh, involve drink and you're, for religious reasons, not somebody that takes alcohol, that's really exclusionary. Yes. Uh, if you're somebody, uh, you know, another example of that is, you know, big lunch events organised during Ramadan, for example. You know, that, that mm. it's not inclusive. Okay. You're invited. What, what about the notion of positive action, for example? Mm -hmm. Like, there's headlines in the paper at the moment about our own beloved law library, Mark, uh, where the Bar Council has taken a decision to try and encourage firms to give briefs to female colleagues mm -hmm. over male colleagues because they believe that that's necessary in order to address a gender balance. Maybe that exists and traditionally has existed. I mean, you know, are we talking about something like that in terms of corporate law firms? Are, I mean, ultimately, it is a business and, you know, firms will hire people that are, you know, of assistance to that business. And maybe the people that they traditionally have hired are the people that suit that business and therefore diversity doesn't really come into it, I wonder. Well, diversity has to come into it because clients are demanding it. That's the first thing. And the clients, so are, clients demanding are demanding it. it. Clients okay. are demanding it. But it's also a question of authenticity, you know, um, if you actually, as a business, want to get the best people, you have to look at the structural barriers. It's, I'm sorry to say it, it's easy to promote a white male. Hmm. But are you talking you know? particularly about gender diversity? Or, I mean, obviously, because of Ireland's immigration pattern, there wouldn't be that many, should we say, uh, people from non-Irish 
white background at, at, at the age that would be likely to be senior partners in um, in, in Irish law firms. For Very example. much so at the moment. So, and, so, you know, so you're, you're, you're probably looking at recruiting if you're looking for for, for people from, from new Irish backgrounds, you're talking about people in their 20s and 30s more likely than people in their 50s and 60s, for example. That's true. And at the moment, you know, the most, most acute situation, as I see it, within the professions, and it's not just the legal profession, uh, it, it is one of gender at the moment. Mm. But, you know, it's very complex. It, it's not just about firms not trying to uh, help women to progress. Firms are really trying to help women to progress, uh, in my experience. But Women very often rule themselves out. Why is that? Um, a lot of it is to do with structural issues. It's to do with perceptions, uh, assumptions that are made about women very often, uh, about what they may or may not want. Maybe they don't want to progress. Well, have you asked them? Uh, you know, so there are lots of things. But if you, for example, have a partnership where, let's say, okay, a, the, the the culture within the partnership is that People won't progress to partner unless there's effectively unanimous support for that. You know, that sounds like a really lovely, cosy thing. Yes. But And is that the way it works? It can do. Uh, it's not uncommon. But that can actually really seriously impact your ability to bring less likely candidates forward. And I'm saying less likely not in terms of their ability. We're talking about people who are all exceptionally good. But they might just be harder to promote because it's just not so easy to see the the sort of the the same trajectory um, so, from a business so, perspective. So can I pick up? Are you saying that there is still a bit of a glass ceiling at play in corporate law firms? Is is that? Am I right in picking that up? I'm or saying there's a sticky floor. Sticky floor. Okay. Okay. Yes. Okay. That's that's it, it's. I'm, that's very interesting, I have to say. That's very interesting. It wasn't something that I kind of anticipated. We have a lot of young graduates in terms at the moment, predominantly female, I would yes, have thought. Yes, predominantly female. You know, female. high achieving, getting into the business, doing really well. And yet they're finding the odd stumbling block along the way, obstacle to overcome. Yeah. And so just bringing you back to the point about um, Denton's approach, where you're looking at seniority, seniority and influence, I suppose the question I'd ask is, in an organisation, who are the decision makers? You know, who are the equity partners within a partnership? Uh, a partnership may have a large number of salaried partners, but who are the actual people holding the equity? What do they look like? What do they sound like? Uh, what is their background? And I do think that's very important. And one of yes. the things, you know, about the dentist team, certainly in Dublin and, and, and the broader team that I've met in other offices already, is that there is a very tangible sense of diversity. And, and uh, I'm really... Um, finding that something that very much attunes with my own priorities in terms of, you know, Ivan Saunders uh, is an amazing managing partner. Uh, she is really passionate about this and she has set about creating a diverse team. Um, and, and is it just a matter of appointing and promoting or is it does it encompass other things like the sort of family supports that people, male or female, may need? I mean, you know, the, mm. the traditional model of people who've effectively said you sell your soul to our firm and you work 80 hours a, a week, you know, simply doesn't work for people who have commitments outside of the workplace. And, you know, unfortunately, in the, it's still in the modern world, that still generally falls on the female partner, at least certainly at certain stages of their of family life. I mean, is that is that something that, that, that a firm like Denton's can overcome? Very much so. Um, and I think that's... Now, Denton's is an all-equity partnership, which very much isn't very much in tune with my own way of doing things. Um, 
but there are flexibilities there. And and actually, I suppose they have, um, I, I would say they're more advanced uh, that, than the traditional Irish market here in terms of their attitudes to things like agile working and flexibility and all of that. And, and would that apply to Denson's in every other country? Because, I mean, they, they operate in so many different jurisdictions. I mean, is that is that a global priority? Yes, it is, yeah. Um, and, and it's quite refreshing in a way, you know, if you see young partners coming in who, who need that bit of flexibility, they're at that particular time. I mean, my youngest is nine now. Um, so I, I've sort of got beyond that point where I can't pick up a book on holiday. You know, I'm, I, I'm, I, I, in fact, I wrote, read, read 10 books on my holiday there wow, a couple okay. of weeks ago. But um, that's a whole other story. But, can, can, uh, I, can I just say to you, again, yeah. going back to kind of a previous life for myself and Mark, and, and again, talking to kind of partners in, in serious firms, a great effort is made, and the Law Society, I think, has made a great effort to try and make, you know, working practices within law firms more nine to five, if possible. But at the end of the day, if the client needs you, you have to be there at the end of the phone. Isn't that the case? You have to be available. So attempts to try and create a more normal working week or something that's more family friendly or allowing people to engage in other activities in life and stuff like that. At the end of the day, you do have to be there when the phone rings and the client says, I need advice. True, true. And I mean, look, I work very hard. Um, uh, My colleagues work very hard and we are uh, flexible and available when the clients need us. But there's a huge amount of, um, there's a lot you can do with collegiality, actually. Okay. You know, I remember back in 2015, I visited a law firm in Amsterdam. Um, I was on a bit of a fact find in relation to an initiative um, that we were spearheading at the time. And they were talking about how their corporate team was organised and they had brought in this revolutionary new approach. Uh, And it was basically based on, we need more people so that we can share the load a bit more, so that we don't have people sitting at their desk at four in the morning, that actually there's somebody you can hand it over to. And I thought that was very refreshing at the time and seemed quite radical. Um, And does that mean that the the senior partner isn't the one who says the bug stops with me, you ring me at three o'clock in the morning, or, you know, that you, you can trust the people sort of elsewhere in the food chain to, 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 to make the key decision at the key time? I'm not sure I like the term food chain. I might just quibble yeah, with that. Sure. But, but certainly, look, my approach with my team has always been to work very collaboratively so that you have somebody else's back and they have your back and you are always able to pick up for people when you need to. So you don't have a single person sitting at their desk saying, this is just my responsibility yeah. and, and on it, on me it uh, stands or falls. But that's my approach and uh, not necessarily universal. So it's horses for courses. But I, but I do think um, you, you can come at these things in a, in a more enlightened way. And certainly in terms of the way that Denton's is organised, I find that there, there's a lovely buzz in the office. There, there's a sense. I mean, last week, the corporate team put over two really enormous transactions and you wouldn't have known it because they were all re- you know, working really hard, but really good natured. There was a nice atmosphere around the place. And, and I think that says something about the, the team that has been built. Wow, well, it sounds like a very exciting departure. I'm curious, Kildare Street, you didn't feel you needed to go down to the Keys and the Liffey, you know, with all your buddies and have coffee with them? Well, I spent you know. many years down at the Liffey. Yeah. Um, 
Well, it, you know, I, I'm a city centre dweller, so Kildare Street so is a bit of a luxury now, but yeah. And when will the, the new premises be open? Just after Christmas. Okay, well, it sounds very exciting. Karen, thank you, Mark. Wasn't that fantastic? That very interesting. Thank really, you. really interesting. And thank you thank you for telling us about your wonderful career and the exciting future that, that lies ahead and all the work you're doing to try and bring more work into Dublin, which is in all our interests. Karen Harty, thank you so much for coming in and being a guest on The Fifth Court. Thanks very much. The Fifth Court is adjourned until next week. So that's all from this episode of The Fifth Court. We want to say a huge thank you to Karen Harty, Head of Litigation at Denton's Law Firm, for coming in and talking to us today and giving us that fascinating interview, Mark. Yeah, it was a great interview. And just a reminder to all listeners, if you did enjoy this show, um, do share with all of your friends and colleagues on your favourite social media apps, Twitter, LinkedIn or whichever, and let all of your colleagues know about it. Yes, absolutely. And share, share, share. And I'd like to say a huge thank you also to the Dublin South podcast studios who recorded this episode for us and did such a wonderful job. So from myself and Mark, until next week, goodbye. Never miss a vital Irish legal judgment. Check out Decisis Law Reports, where you'll find a fully indexed collection of all Irish judgments delivered since 2011. Visit decisis.ie to find out more.